to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 48 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope this conversation inspires you to take deliberate action in your life. In this episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with pilot-turned-clinical psychologist and author Dr. Rebecca Ray. Beck was a clinical psychologist for the best part of two decades and now uses a science-backed, heart and hard-truth approach to helping individuals live a life that's fulfilling, unapologetic and free. In this episode, we discuss why boundaries are so important, the unexpected gifts of boundaries, how to set healthy boundaries and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Dr. Rebecca Ray. Beck, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks for having me, May. Today, we're going to be diving into your incredible book, Setting Boundaries, Care for Yourself and Stop Being Controlled by Others. But before we go there, could you please tell us a little bit about your story to becoming such a well-loved author and clinical psychologist? It's a it could be an unusual path. The idea that I could understand why humans do what they do just was very attractive to me. Um, I was surrounded at the time by some fairly unhealthy family dynamics. Um, My parents were considering separating at the time. And so I think there was a part of me that was always quite an emotional person. And I was just interested in the emotions of other human beings. My parents stayed together, by the way, but that's another story. And um, I went, I left school, grade 12, finished grade 12 and went straight into uni, um, studying a Bachelor of Business in Human Resource Management combined with a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology. And in that year, um, my grandfather, who was a private pilot, um, happened to tell me that if I could drive a car, I could also fly a plane. And I loved Ronnie. I still adore him. One of my favorite men on the face of the planet. He's no longer with us, but plays a part in my life on a daily basis. We have chats in my head. And um, I decided that I was going to learn to fly. Now, this was in the context of having a very fragile sense of self-worth and being really quite an anxious um, little girl. Uh, At 18, I was just a little girl. Um, And so I decided that the way to overcome my anxiety was to do something that was quite big at the time. Aviation was certainly a very male dominated field. So to go and get my pilot's license was kind of like a thing. I was thought, well, if I can do this, if I can fly a plane, then surely my anxiety will go away. That's actually bullshit. It doesn't work like that. So um, I went and got a private pilot's license, a commercial pilot's license, a night uh, flying rating, a multi-engine rating and an instructor's rating before I actually figured out that it doesn't work like that and um, my anxiety was not going to go away. And so while it helped me to bond with Ronnie, I also then needed to actually acknowledge that flying violated my life non-negotiables, which were I actually really like sitting at the same desk, doing the same thing, working from home. Um, I didn't always work from home, but I do now. And flying is just one huge career of changes. So everything changes on a daily basis. And I don't cope well with lots of change and a lack of routine. And I really had to acknowledge that. I also really had to acknowledge that I'm much more comfortable with writing words on a page rather than figuring out maths in a 
kind of visuospatial setting in the middle of the sky. So um, I failed. Uh, I did all this flying thinking that I would overcome my anxiety and I ended up bawling my eyes out and telling my parents who had invested quite some money into my flying training by this stage that I didn't want to fly um, as a career. I'd won a scholarship for my flying training through ANSET when they were still around and everything, and I just had to walk away. And so it was a huge heaviness. I can feel it now as I think back to it. It was a heaviness. I felt like I'd failed. I went back to psychology, finished my training, went on to do a professional doctorate in clinical psychology, and then I went on to work for the for DVA, the Department of Veteran Affairs, and um, then I went into private practice and essentially tried to prove myself to my referrers, to my patients, and did a lot of work that I was actually very good at. I ended up spending a lot of time treating police and military personnel, both current and retired. And so I specialized in PTSD and working with men and women that had had amazing careers but were suffering as a result. And I got to the age of, oh, the ripe old age of 35 um, and realized that I was actually so burnt out. It wasn't funny. And I'd spent like some years by this stage trying to deal with burnout. So I'd cut down my days. I'd cut down my hours. I'd taken more holidays and none of it had worked. I'd essentially just done too much work in the space of time that I did it and burnout made the decision for me. Um, and I had to walk away from my clinical practice about 35 years prior to when I'd planned to. So I thought I would be in clinical practice for the rest of my life. Um, uh, it was a job I absolutely loved. And yet I got to the point where I was just so burnt out. I didn't have a choice. And so I was left with how on earth do I use eight years of psychology training? Because I still loved psychology quite deeply. How do I use all this training and at the time what was over a decade's worth of clinical experience to still make a difference in the world? Like what what do I do? I just had absolutely no idea about how on earth I could create a life for myself outside clinical practice. So I decided to try creating an online presence. And for an introvert, that was really confronting. I didn't even have a Facebook profile. Like I was just so anti-social media. I still am anti-social media, but I just use it for work now. And so I created an online presence and then tried to sell online, knowing absolutely nothing about how to sell online. My first program, although the content was amazing, it was a massive failure. It cost me a stack of money um, for pretty much nothing back but it taught me lessons and it taught me how to grow a social media platform um, to then find an audience for the messages that I wanted to offer the world. And so I essentially wanted to take what I knew as a psychologist, you know, about the basic things that every person struggles with and offer my particular slant on how to deal with those things. And so I built quite a big Instagram page, um, when I was hiding behind a brand called Happy Habits. So I I tried to do my best to not put myself out there to begin with. Uh, Again, don't recommend. Uh, Please don't do what I do. Um, Do what I've learned not to do or do the opposite. And from that brand, I got approached by a publisher who said to me randomly, sent me a DM on Instagram and said, I love the community that you've created. Do you want to write a book? And I was like, this is weird. This is 
I thought it was spam because she had a very unusual name. And I said to my wife, who just messages someone on Instagram and says, do you want to write a book? Like, it's just ridiculous. Anyway, she was legit. She called me from New York and my first book was published the following year. And in the meantime, essentially what I've done is taught myself how to sell online, um, created enough content because I've always been committed to giving free content because I, I believe that therapy is very much a privilege, but created a stack of free content and lower price content for people to access my work while also finding a way to pay the bills at the end of the day and work as a psychologist. So that's a really long story to say. I didn't actually expect to be doing what I do today. Um, that was never in my plan. And yet here I am kind of doing a job that doesn't really feel like work. I like kind of wake up in the morning and have chats with people like you about, you know, really nice stuff and personal growth and things that I love and write books. And that's my job now. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your story. And I love how all the twists and turns have led you to this space of true alignment and connection. If we could go back to the earlier part in your story where you're a pilot and working your way up the ranks after a significant investment of time, energy and finances, can you tell us how you came to the decision that being a pilot just was not for you? I came to it on about the, I don't know, 50th time I was driving to the airport and almost needed to pull over to vomit. So I came to the decision at a visceral level. It was creating so much anxiety in me that I kind of lapsed into a state of depression. I was so far out of alignment. And when I was doing my flying, uh, particularly my instructor rating, when I flew every single day, you know, it was not a question of my flying ability. It was a question of the fact that I was using skills. I was using particular ways of being on a daily basis that just didn't fit for me at all. I was so far outside my comfort zone that it was beyond just wouldn't this be a cool goal? You know, like someone might wake up in the morning and go, I've never run before, but I might train to run a marathon, right? And they do it once. My physio did this. He he trained once for six months, ran one marathon, and then never did it again and has, in fact, never run again, hates running. Um, and I kind of get that. You know, I get the I, – I like people who live big lives and I get the – the whole wake up one day and go, wouldn't this be great? I want to do this, you know? But I just pushed it so far in an attempt to try and prove something to myself, I think, to, I'm not sure who I was trying to prove it to, but it was in the process of proving that I just exhausted every ounce of oomph I had in life. Like I lost my spirit. There was just so much about it that I had to kind of look in the mirror and go, you hate this now, or at least you hate 95% of it. The 5% of which I would go out and we'd fly over Moreton Bay, uh, the other guy who was doing an instructor rating with me. And we would go out during the day and have competitions to see who could do the most number of steep turns in a row without losing height. And we would go looking for dugongs from the air and sharks and things like that. Like it was a lot of fun, that part, but that was 5% of the whole thing. And the rest of it just violated so much of my being that I got to the point where having the conversation with my mum and dad, the fear of that was more comfortable than putting myself through flying and continuing against that misalignment. It got to the point where 
you know, I, I preferred the unknown of what my parents would say to what I knew I was continuing to put myself through. And as it was, my parents simply said, well, we're not blind. Like we've seen that you've been unhappy. Like just go and do what you want to do, like live your life. And I was like, oh, oh, you don't care. Okay, um, fine, I'll go back to psychology. But it's been my entire career has been a sense of, sorry, a series, not a sense, a series of decisions that have been more and more decisions of alignment. So even through clinical practice, I made decisions based on what I thought I should do, what I thought my practice should look like. Um, when I first started selling online and creating an online space, I was still operating from a place of, is this what you should do? Like, what what are the rules here? Tell me the rules so that I can do it right. And it's only in the last few years that I've realized no one knows what they're doing. And even if you find out the rules, it's likely that that works for some businesses and some people, but it's it may not work for you depending on your makeup as a person and depending on your audience and all those sorts of things. But I've just kind of gotten to the point where I'm like, you know what, I'm there, the only way is actually my way. There is only one way for me. And so I... I write books based on my way of doing it. I don't even know whether that's right. I don't know. My publisher seems to be happy at the end of the day, so whatever. I sell online my way. I launch intuitively based on what I feel like launching at the time. I don't, I I essentially operate from a place of, does this feel good to me? Does it feel aligned with the contribution that I'm trying to make? And does it match the personal resources that I have to offer today? And if the answer is yes, then we go ahead and do it. And if the answer is no, then I'm just super great at saying no. (laughs) I don't have any issues with saying no. So if the answer is no, then I'm actually doing us both a favor if I'm saying no to you because I don't have what I need to give you 150% um, because what you're asking me to do either doesn't fit for me or I don't particularly want to do it or because I just know I don't have the energy right now. So I say no far more often than I say yes. Um, And that's because I'm just so good at understanding my own alignment now, but it's only through all of those kind of perceived failures because burnout was another massive failure for me at the time that I had to work through and grieve for and recover from that now I'm very clear on my alignment and I'm very clear on what that looks like. And I don't go looking outside myself for the answer anymore, which means I just save time. I think I I just kind of get to the point where I'm like, no, this is the way we're doing it because this is the way that feels aligned. It's just that simple now. As you're talking, Beck, I can see the lightness and confidence shining through and your story demonstrates that you've developed such a strong sense of self and work to create a life that really works for you. You've learned what works, what doesn't work, how to listen to your body and how to articulate your needs. So what led you to writing Setting Boundaries? My publisher. <laughs> so I wanted to write a book on self-worth, right? I wanted to write because as far as I'm concerned, every single client that ever crossed the threshold of my therapy office had issues with self-worth. And pretty much every human being on the face of the planet is challenged to um, feel worthy because we all want to belong from a survival perspective. So it's actually really normal to feel unworthy and kind of get stuck in how do I make, how do I reach a state where I actually feel solid on the ground with my own value as a human being? And my publisher was like, nah, 
nah. <laughs> can, can we talk about boundaries? And I was like, I thought about it a lot and I came to the conclusion that boundaries are actually the language of self-worth. And once I, once I figured that out for myself, I was like, oh, okay, yes, that's fine. I can write a book on boundaries because what I, what we're then teaching the audience is how to speak about worthiness rather than saying, um, I'm sorry, Meg, I can't record the podcast at this time because I'm worthy and I'm valuable. Therefore, um, sorry, that doesn't work for me. I can then teach people a language, the language of boundaries that can allow them to operate in the world between themselves and themselves and between themselves and other people to be able to communicate their rights and their needs and their value. So it becomes a lot more practical. That's what, that's how the setting boundaries came about was how can we take someone's value as a human being and then give them a language for it so that they can then move through the world to make sure that their own circles of empowerment and preservation are both communicated and respected. That makes so much sense, Beck. And as we start to value our time and resources, we start to protect it because we're not as willing to give it away or waste it on unnecessary things. And as life goes on, we often take on more responsibilities in the workplace and in the home. So physically and emotionally, we just can't keep being everything to everyone. We have to learn, and mostly the hard way, that we are all human, that we have limits. So learning the skill of setting and maintaining boundaries can be transformational for people. Yeah, it's quite huge, especially once people get past this idea that boundaries are hard or boundaries equal conflict. And I talk about this a lot in the with the women in my um, mastermind group, Intentional Business, how boundaries is actually our source of freedom. If you don't uh, communicate your boundaries to someone else, then you're essentially asking them to be a mind reader. It's not all that helpful because we are not mind readers in our relationships with other people, no matter how much you or how well you know each other. And so I like to speak about boundaries in terms of being the biggest gift that we can give one another in relationships, whether that be in a partnership, whether it be in uh, a workplace, in a friendship setting, in an acquaintance setting, or in a business setting, in the work that you're doing, where you are offering someone else your instruction manual. And I can say, you know, this is what I need on a daily basis. These are the, this is the way to love and respect me. Here's my user manual. And you then get to take that information and do what's in the user manual to love and respect me. So it means that you don't have to be a mind reader. And it means that what I'm also showing you is that with my boundaries, I then expect you to have boundaries that I'll respect as well. So it's a two-way street. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can do for other people is to say, I'm sorry, I'm not available them, but I am available them because it gives them permission to do the same for themselves. So learning the skill of setting and maintaining boundaries can be quite transformational for people. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of assumptions that happen in any realm of communication, but especially with boundaries. And oftentimes women assume that the boundary won't go down well. 
And that's what stops them from communicating it in the first place, especially for people pleasers. So they end up in a position where they think, oh, someone's going to react poorly or I'm, I'm going to be judged or I'm going to be seen as selfish or difficult to deal with. So I just won't say anything. And instead I won't rock the boat. I'll just keep the peace and we'll be fine. And then they end up as kind of simmering balls of resentment that at some stage will either implode or explode. That is so true. Often when I talk about people pleasing, I'll name the emotion of resentment and you can just see people's face of like, oh, yes, that is so familiar. I don't say it in the moment, but I feel it days and weeks afterwards. So when it comes to boundaries, what different categories are there? Oh, there are so many different categories. I want to divide them into two broad categories, which is probably most most easy for listeners to understand. And that's that there are internal boundaries and external boundaries. Internal boundaries are the boundaries between you and you. So they're the boundaries that you are responsible for meeting for yourself. So let's say you might have a boundary of not looking at your phone for an hour before bed and you'd really like to do that. And that's something that's really important. And whether or not you do it is up between you and you. It's an internal vow. No one else is going to say to you, Meg, you promised that you would put your phone in the kitchen rather than put it on your bedside table. And here you are looking at your phone again. So that's an internal boundary. An external boundary is a boundary that you set between you and someone else. So for instance, um, I have a boundary with my team who are the most wonderful people in the history of the world who have actually never met face to face, would you believe? online, of course, they're in Victoria like you. And so I have a boundary that I don't contact them on the weekends because I expect them to have a life. I expect them to not be meeting every need that I, just because I'm thinking about it on a Sunday, I don't contact them on a, on a weekend because we have that boundary there. I also have a boundary with my wife that uh, was probably most recently uh, demonstrated after my book launch for Small Habits for a Big Life, which was my latest book that came out in the end of June. And I went to Sydney for book launch stuff. So uh, as an introvert, there's a lot of peopling that goes into that week. I went on national TV. I went on like numerous podcasts. There was just a lot of output for me. And while I can do all that stuff, that's fine because I kind of go into a work mode and just do the thing that needs to be done. My boundary when I get home is I'm not available for talking. Now, God love Nissa, she knows this. We've been together nearly 10 years, so this is not new. When we first got together, I would get home from work and she would be like, have I done something wrong? Like, what's the matter? You don't want to talk? And I'd be like, no, no, you haven't done anything wrong. I'm just not available for talking. Like I literally have nothing else to give. And now she she said to me, um, we're so looking forward to having you home, um, Bennett, and I can't wait to pick you up from the airport, but I also know that you won't be available for talking. And so I got home. I wrapped myself up in a doona. I acknowledged Bennett as much as he needed to be acknowledged, but he kind of curled up beside me anyway with the dogs. And Nissa and I kind of communicated via glances for about 12 12 hours because I had nothing to give. So that's a boundary between myself and another person that's really quite unique to me. Maybe other introverts do it. I'm not sure. But it's something that works for our relationship because it means that in communicating it that way, Nissa realizes that it's not actually about her. She's done nothing wrong. It's simply about my social energy identity and the way I restore my batteries. And that takes time to develop this understanding of self-knowledge that I really need some downtime. After I've been with so many humans, talking, 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 
for you, you need to step back and to recharge. And then that's that self-knowledge and then articulating that knowledge to somebody else so you can have this loving understanding of how you are in the world. And I also like the distinction between the self-boundary. So what do I need for me and what do I need to step up for? And also that external boundary. So when it comes to boundaries, how can we get better at making them? And knowing them to begin with helps, but it's also about understanding that you can get really valuable data from your emotions. So we don't always know our boundaries until they've been crossed. And this can be because either boundaries haven't been modeled for us well by our growing up. So we've ended up in a relationship where our boundaries were disrespected, or you've kind of just grown up with a personality style that leans towards people pleasing and you, you put everyone else's needs and rights before your own. Um, so the first thing to think about is, well, where am I feeling that resentment or frustration? Because that's probably showing you where a boundary exists in your life, but you're not respecting it or someone else is not respecting it. So if you're frustrated with yourself, you're probably violating a boundary of your own. If you're resentful of someone else and you're frustrated with someone else, then it's likely there's a boundary there that perhaps you haven't communicated. They don't know it's there. Or if they do know it's there and they're continuing to cross it, you've not reinforced it and set consequences. So they're beautiful signs for us to look out for this frustration. So this internal frustration that there's a boundary. And then if that's external around the resentment piece, they're beautiful signs for us to start to take notice. And in your book, you highlighted the difference between an orange flag and a red flag. And I absolutely love this. I've never heard about it before. The difference between a boundary error and a boundary violation. Could you explain that for us? So a boundary error is when someone didn't know the boundary was there, crossed it, got made aware of it, and then usually goes on to respect it afterwards. A boundary violation is where someone was very aware that there's a boundary there, but chooses to cross it anyway. So we can think of it in terms of, you know, stoplights. There's a warning light is the orange and the stoplight is the red. That That's the violation. The orange flag or is just a warning. Oh, you, I'm sorry, you didn't realize that that's a boundary. You know, here's the boundary. I'm going to communicate it to you. Please don't do it again. So it might be something as simple as, you know, if we're going to record a podcast, this did not happen, listeners, but let's say it did, um, and you turned up 15 minutes late to record the podcast and I'd be sitting here for 15 minutes doing nothing. Perhaps we have a different view on time value and I would then communicate that if we were going to record on an ongoing basis that I really value my time and I expect you to turn up on time next time. Um, those types of things are often uh, orange flags. You know, they're not a sign that someone intentionally wants to cross your boundaries. When it comes to boundary violations, though, it's likely that your psychological safety is being threatened in that relationship. So that means that you can't rely on that person to respect your boundaries and those boundaries need to be strengthened and likely defended with consequences. So let's look at some examples of how we could set some boundaries of some everyday things that cause us a bit of tension. So I'm thinking of a teacher that works in a shared office. People are coming and going from classes and when you have a time where you're not teaching, you're thinking, great, I want to get in and get some work done. But then you also know there's a teacher that always comes in and sits down and just wants to chat, just wants to vent, wants to complain, wants to just talk to you during this period. 
and you're noticing that resentment that I want to get some work done and they just will not shut up. What do we do? I love thinking about a visual for this um, because people like this often don't realize what they're doing is crossing your boundaries. But just imagine it, instead of blaming it on that person, we can take back our responsibility for this by imagining a door. So there is a door, an imaginary door between you and this other person. If you leave it open, it's not the other person's fault for walking through it. You left it open in the first place. So what did you expect to happen? So what we need to do is have a verbal way of communicating that the door is now shut. So it might be something along the lines of, Kate, I so want to hear this story that you want to tell me about what you did on the weekend. I love our chats, but right now I just need to get these worksheets completed. So can we chat this afternoon after school finishes? So you're closing the door gently. You're making it clear that you're not available for this conversation right now and you are then closing the door. And if Kate says, oh, sorry, sorry, I didn't realise that you're so busy. Yeah, yeah, of course. Kate will go and find someone else because that's what Kates do. When they have something to get out, usually they're extroverts, they're really effervescent and bright and fun to be around. They will go and find another person with a door open that they can talk to. Um, And that's fine. But you're just not available in that moment to meet that need for them. That is such a beautiful idea for us to think about. The door, is the door open or is it closed? And are we clear about if we're always leaving the door open and we're inviting that resentment because we've left the door open and they've come through and then we're wondering why are you coming through? You know, we could potentially do simple things like put some headphones on or something to say to signify that I am working now, even if there's no music, there's nothing actually happening in those headphones, but it's just uh, the door is closed. Absolutely. And sometimes then kind of nuance to this that we probably should talk about because this can then extend to you crossing your own boundaries with yourself. So let's say Kate knows that when your headphones are on, you're not available. And she um, comes along and she goes, oh, um, I want to tell you something when you've got time. Let's catch up after school. And you go, oh, no, no, it's fine. Tell me now. And you take your headphones off, right? Yes. Even though she's respected the boundary, you've now flung open the door because you feel like procrastinating or whatever it is. You know, you're just in the mood at that time. And yet future you, this afternoon you, is going to be pretty annoyed that you didn't get those worksheets done and you now have to do them at home because they're not done for tomorrow. So it's really important that you then don't blame Kate for that because she tried to respect the boundary, but you physically, oh, sorry, you metaphorically opened the door. So then the boundary is actually between you and you. You didn't uphold the boundary that you said you would uphold, that Kate tried to uphold for you. So it sounds like when it comes to boundaries, the first initial door closing takes effort, but it's really keeping that door shut. It's the maintaining the boundaries over time where probably a part of us wants to go back to that traditional way of functioning with other people. Yeah. And it's also about knowing that, you know, our needs do change on a daily basis. And sometimes the boundary will be important and other times it will be less important. So when I'm approaching, I have a boundary right now. I'm in the middle of writing my sixth book. And so that boundary is between me and me. I mean, it's kind of between me and my publisher, but she knows full well that the book will be delivered at deadline, if not before. So me sitting down to write each day is actually between me and me. 
because there are a whole series of things that happen to get in the way of that, like new content I'm creating for my audience, people that want to interview interview me on their podcasts, a whole series of things that can continue getting in my way that will take up my time if I don't listen or pay attention to that internal boundary that if you don't write the book, the book actually doesn't get written. So it then means that there are times where I need to pay attention to that boundary even when I don't feel like it. So there will be times when uh, I don't have a choice, like especially approaching the end of a deadline. I just It just has got to get done. And there will be times when I've actually got plenty of time and I'm not feeling all that creative when I might choose to ignore the boundary on that day because I'm not getting out of myself what I would expect to get out of myself in a writing session. So it is really important to kind of acknowledge how our needs kind of change and wax and wane depending on season of life, sickness, you know, all those types of things. But it's also about understanding that the more consistent you are with your boundaries, the more freedom they offer you. So you can't expect to have a boundary between you and someone else that you don't respect and have that boundary work. And you can't expect to have a boundary between you and yourself that you don't respect either and that you don't listen to and have it provide any sense of valuable contribution to your life. So boundaries only work, A, if they're communicated, and B, if the people involved actually respect them. And that's so good to think about, are we respecting our own boundaries because there's a lot of narrative around boundaries and the external boundaries but these internal boundaries they're really building our strength it's like they're building our boundary muscles that as we trust ourselves along the process then we can trust other people as we step up in a more aligned way yeah exactly what a gift. What a gift we can give ourselves and others to take the time to really articulate what we need, what works, and then also hear from others what do they need, what works for them, and how can we come to an arrangement where we're respecting each other's needs. So you shared the example that at the end of the day you don't like to talk, um, you, you know, you talked out, and that's an example that teachers come to me with all the time. And then they say, but their partner wants to talk. Their partner hasn't talked all day and they want to talk. And so coming to an arrangement where I respect your need of talking and I respect I don't need talking and then together how can we move forward in a way that suits both of us and respects both of us? And what a beautiful place to be. Absolutely. And it's that's dynamic as well because the other person, their needs are going to change as well. So they might have times where they actually want to talk to you. I talk to Nissa about this all the time. I'm like, can you please talk to some of your music friends about this because I just don't have the, like, interest. But sometimes she actually really wants my take. She's super excited about my reaction about something. And it, I think it's important to know that with your partners, to know when it actually needs to be you that participates in that conversation versus when it can be someone else. Nissa and I are so clear about our different needs like that, that she she will actually say, I haven't had enough people time. So um, Bennett and I are going for coffee with ex-friend in town um, this afternoon and you can stay home and not talk to anyone. And I'm like, brilliant, go, go people, like do your peopling because I just don't have that need. And whereas sometimes she'll say, oh, this happened, it really stressed me out, and I know that it's actually me that she needs to receive that. What we're talking about really is self-knowledge, 
self-trust and what can happen and what can emerge in relationships and in systems when we are clear around our boundaries. Thank you so much for giving us so much to think about. So to wrap up this beautiful conversation, I'd love to invite you to complete four sentences. Are you up for that? Sure. I am inspired by? I'm inspired by possibility. The possibilities in life for myself, for the people I love, for my child, and for the people that I work with. There is nothing more that inspires me um, than thinking about what's possible here. When life feels hard? When life feels hard, I talk to my grandparents. I was lucky enough to have adult relationships with all four of my grandparents, um, three of whom have just died in the last couple of years and one who died 20 years ago, and I maintain those relationships in my head. So when life feels hard, I can't explain it. I just go to them in my head. Um, And I also remind myself that sometimes it feels hard now, but the hardness, if that's a word, um, is unlikely to last because everything's transient. That's just so beautiful. An underrated skill is? Sitting with discomfort. I think so much of my work and so much of all the work that I did when I was in clinical practice was helping people to understand the difference between discomfort for the sake of discomfort. So the stuff that we do that just keeps ourselves um, in cycles of self-sabotage, you know, we're, we're actually making life harder for ourselves versus the discomfort that we need to be able to accept in the name of growth. And I am looking forward to. Right now, I was actually gifted. Uh, one of my intentional business participants sent me this amazing box of just stuff. There was like a wheat pack and an aromatherapy thing and an eye mask. And in it was two cookies. And um, I'm really looking forward to I've put the cookies aside and I can't wait to pick Bennett up and see the look on his face when I tell him I've got a surprise. It's such a small thing, but I love saying to him, there's a surprise at home for you. And he just gets super excited. So I'm just excited to give him those cookies. Oh, that is absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much, Beck, for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks for having me, Meg. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope this conversation has inspired you to set healthier boundaries with yourself and others. To learn more about Beck's incredible work in the world, visit her website, drrebeccaray.com.au or follow Beck on social media at drrebeccaray. Before you go, I invite you to complete two sentences. Number one, from this conversation, I want to remember, what is your pearl? And number two, the action I'm going to take in the next 24 hours to support my well-being is. If you're enjoying the show, I'd love it if you could write a short review on iTunes or Spotify. It will only take a few minutes and it really helps to share the podcast with more listeners. Thank you to Charlotte from Wellbeing Gets Real for writing the following review. Great conversations, always very topical and helps to educate about wellbeing. Highly recommend listening and following Meg. Thanks, Charlotte, for taking the time to write a review. I really appreciate it. To learn how I can help you thrive, visit openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event or make an inquiry about my game-changing wellbeing program, Thrive by Design. Join my weekly newsletter to get all the details about upcoming events and to get access to my regular book giveaways. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 48. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.